0: From Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Lots of education policy and lots of education politics went down this week, and we, we got to start where we were last week, uh, the West Ada School District, back in session, but uh, quite a tumultuous process to get there. Clark, you were, you were following closely.
1: Yeah, it was a big week uh, for the state's largest school district, for the West Ada School District. As we left off last week, there was a massive teacher sick-out brewing, where uh, at the behest of the local West Ada Education Association Teachers Union, hundreds of teachers put in advanced sick day requests uh, for Monday, and then they did it again on Tuesday in protest of the district moving ahead with its hybrid operations plan, which offered in-person learning, uh, basically split the student body in half into two different teams. And uh, the plan is to offer in-person learning on alternating days. The West Data teachers said that they don't feel comfortable uh, teaching in-person in the red. They think that, um, that the learning plan should be all remote when it's in the red. And so their protest was to organize these massive sick days that they called a sick out. Uh, They succeeded in uh, canceling school uh, for Monday and Tuesday. More than 600 uh, teachers called in sick for Monday. More than 400 called in sick for Tuesday. But then by Wednesday, uh, they were back in session. Uh, It sounded like they did not reach an agreement uh, between the district and the teachers' union. They did have some meetings. They met Tuesday morning. I know that the West Data team, which included Superintendent Marianne Rannells, met with uh, Eric Thies from the West Data Education Association and Luke Franklin from the Idaho Education Association. I'm told they met in person Tuesday morning. And they didn't come up with a, a solution, but they agreed uh, that school would resume on Wednesday. And so school did go back in session uh, Wednesday as planned. They did move into the alternate alternate days hybrid learning plan that the board had approved uh, last week. and so it was quite a disruption it's like again it's the state's largest school district Uh, they have more than 2,000 teachers Uh, they serve more than 38,000 students um, uh, between all grades at at, at K-12 and so it it really was under the microscope uh, this week with all eyes on them as uh, this sick day campaign really disrupted schools and it was to the point that the district was making decisions you know, late in the game, parents found out late Friday afternoon that there wouldn't be school on Monday. And then again, on Monday, parents didn't get the word until about 2pm or 2.15pm on Monday afternoon that they would not have school that following day on Tuesday. And so it was really a, a, a difficult situation. But it all comes back to it's it sort of shining a light um, on how the state's you know navigating this coronavirus pandemic and the continued ups and downs you know now that we're some almost three months into the school year for some uh, still having issues still seeing uh, schools go back and forth between opening between i think it was caldwell high school had to go uh, back remote this week following an outbreak Uh, there's been movement uh, among the health districts uh, with the different classifications and so we're continuing Uh, To see this be really the major issue or a major issue of this still young school year, right, Kevin and
0: and, and the issue is not going to go away in in West Ada I mean, even though school is back in session the controversy hasn't subsided Uh, trustees are going to meet next week and they're They're bringing in David Pate the retired uh, CEO from the st. Luke's uh, healthcare system as sort of a consultant so you know, you're going to be watching that meeting next week. And that will give us a little bit of a sense of how the district is trying to navigate this controversy going forward.
1: That's going to be really interesting. Uh, I expect that'll be coming up on Tuesday. Uh, We will cover that meeting in Idaho Ed News. But yeah, Dr. Pate, we were just talking before we turned on the microphone. Neither one of us know him. I didn't know of him um, before the pandemic, but he's really made a name for himself using social media and specifically Twitter to very much um, call out some of the safety concerns with this pandemic and to point out some of his concerns uh, and to point out some of the concerns that we're hearing from hospital administrators all around the state, uh, up in North Idaho and Kootenai County, down in Twin Falls. Uh, we heard concerns from hospital administrators this week. And so Dr. David Pate has really used his social media platform to amplify that and to say, to to quite uh, frankly express some serious concerns about where <laughs> Idaho is right now and about the next period that Idaho is about to enter getting deeper into the fall and the winter is what I've seen.
0: And, and, and at a point where many of the trends are heading in the wrong direction. You know, yeah. Last Friday, the state set a record uh, in terms of numbers of new cases. Uh, the weekly numbers were a, a new New peak. You know, I'm tracking the numbers daily. We'll have our Friday roundup on on the website on my blog, and I can tell you right now, 20 counties already have seen an increase in case numbers of more than 10% just in the past week. 20 counties out of 44. So, this is not an isolated outbreak in a couple of communities or a couple of counties. It is fairly close to a statewide spike in cases from Eastern Idaho through the Magic Valley, up into the Panhandle. You mentioned the the hospitalization numbers are trending upward. Uh, Panhandle Health District had a meeting on Thursday in which uh, they they rescinded their mask mandate for Kootenai County in spite of the fact that uh, the hospital up there is at about 99% capacity. And you had health officials in... The panhandle saying we're at a crisis point. Uh, you heard a similar uh, situation in the Magic Valley, uh, medical officials saying, look, our hospitals are nearing capacity. We're, we're at the tipping point here. Nonetheless, uh, that health district uh, decided not to institute a mask requirement in, in the Magic Valley. So you've got, you know, controversy over masks. You've got rising hospitalization rates. We rising case numbers across most of the state. That's the backdrop. That's the backdrop, not just in West Ada, but West Ada has become sort of the, uh, you know, the, the flashpoint in this larger debate about school reopening.
1: Yeah. I want to give a quick shout out to my friend, Audrey Dutton of the Idaho Statesman, had an excellent article this week that really, um, a lot of in-depth reporting that brought out Uh, the situation with the hospitalization and what they're going through in Twin Falls and the Magic Valley. And so if you have not, that that made the rounds quite a bit on social media in the first half of the week. If you haven't seen that already, Audrey Dutton had a great article for the Idaho Statesman. Uh, It's available on their website or by Googling. But also, I mean, you talked about, you're watching the numbers. I'm watching them too. In Madison County is a real concern in Eastern Idaho. uh, That's Rexburg. The Madison school district is home there. Um, a real concern uh, with what the numbers have done and the number of cases, uh, the positivity rates in, in Madison County and in eastern Idaho. But it's like you said, it's not it's not limited to a big city. It's not li- limited to a certain region. And it hasn't been for, for a long time.
0: And if you listen to the health experts, uh, you know, Dr. Pape being one, but certainly not the only, the consensus view that you're hearing from the health Community is it's going to get worse here before it gets better, that we're heading into a really uh, tricky, dicey, frightening few weeks as these case numbers, and we've seen it before over and over in this pandemic, case numbers uh, eventually translate into hospitalizations and unfortunately hospitalizations eventually translate into uh, increased uh, fatalities that's the pattern. We've seen this happen over and over. So these increases in case numbers are a leading indicator that things could get worse here before they get better. And that's, that's also the backdrop. That's the the public health reality that school districts are facing as they try to figure out whether to, uh, whether to open uh, or stay open or blend between face to face and online learning. It, you know, it's a, it's a tough situation, and it's not going to get easier anytime soon.
1: Now, we've talked about how we're coming into the traditional flu season, and all these different things um, could sort of be compounded. And so everybody from uh, Dr. David Pate, uh, even the governor, to the state epidemiologist, Dr. Christine Hahn, uh, Health and Welfare Director Dave Jeppesen, those are all the things uh, that they're talking about and that they're urging caution about. Uh, we do have another press conference we anticipate with Governor Little next week. Uh, we'll see if there's anything new or if he has anything uh, to report or to do differently with the state's response to the pandemic. Um, there was a state board of education meeting this week. Uh, this is marathon, nine-hour meeting on Wednesday. Uh, but the coronavirus response was a big part of, of that discussion, uh, both at K-12 and at higher education. And at the very end of that meeting, um, and I don't want this to fly under the radar at all because it was pretty significant news uh, that happened in, a, in, a, in the midst of a really busy week. Uh, but the State yep. Board of Education voted unanimously to amend the school reopening guidance that it published back in July. And uh, there were a couple of things that the State Board did. Just a, a real quick caveat at the very beginning here, and it will set you up for a follow-up in a couple of minutes, uh, but this is all non-binding guidance from the state board. And it, when it was in July and it still is now. Uh, and it's the trustees who are responsible for implementing it. And we'll get to that next. Uh, but what the state board did, they moved from three coronavirus exposure and risk classification categories. Essentially, you could think of it as originally it was green, yellow, red, just three categories. Now they're at four categories Um, So now you can, I guess, think of it as green, yellow, orange, and then red. So there are four categories as opposed to three. That was one of the changes. But the other really significant change was for the highest category, the critical risk classification. The state board's old guidance was that, and you heard this a couple of minutes ago, um, was that in the red that school districts should move to remote learning. West Ada had cited that is part of their concerns with the sick out last week and this week. And so what the state board this week did is they added more flexibility to that highest red critical category to where the recommendation is not just only remote learning in the red. Uh, State Board of Education President Debbie Critchfield this week was very clear. Uh, She said, as we get farther into this, we're learning that we can do more than be just full remote in the red. They cited Central District Health, which is one of the seven regional public health districts in Idaho. It serves um, Ada County, Elmore County, uh, Boise County, maybe Valley County as well. It serves four counties, but uh, it is based in in and around Ada and Boise. Uh, but they cited that decision from earlier this month where Central District Health moved all the Ada County schools. That's Boise. That's CUNA. That's West Ada. They moved them into the red at the beginning of October but said, as of now, for now, we still support some level of in-person learning. And the justification that they say for that is that the transmission rates among students are lower than the overall community as a whole. But that was big news this week, Kevin. And, and it is it's another example of how things continue to change, right? The state no. had three categories. And then not long after that, some health districts moved on their own to four categories. But now Central District Health is still in three and the state has moved to four. And so things just keep changing. And some of it is natural that we would expect to happen as we learn more uh, about just this devastating situation. But I know some of it is is leading to confusion and mixed signals and obviously a lot of frustration from everybody to teachers, to policymakers, to students, uh, to parents and patrons. And so I know it just absolutely uh, is a ton of information and it's always changing, but we're trying to keep on top of it and trying to uh, to share the information as, as best we can in a way that, that hopefully makes sense. But that was a big news item this week. No, it
0: really was. And, and as you said, I mean, it came sort of at the very end of a long day of meetings for the state board. And then all of a sudden you get this uh, you know, significant uh, change in policy on, on the reopening guidelines. And, you know, it's, it, it further, you know, change. it's just another change in this kind of ever changing yeah. uh, situation.
1: Yeah, it sure is. But it really underscores the state's position continues to be that rather than issue a statewide mandate rather than issue statewide closures. They've empowered the local school board members and the local trustees. And you had a really interesting piece that you published on Thursday, October 22nd, taking a look at the role of trustees, and how a lot of them asked for this. And it's a difficult, uncomfortable position. But depending on where you live, we're seeing division between trustees and parents and staff members. it's a tough situation uh, that's been passed to these trustees who had never and, and trustees just again to remind folks that they're volunteers, they're not paid. Um, you know a lot of times they're just community members who have been asked to support their schools and, and give back and now they're thrust into this high stakes decision making uh, process. And you talked to a couple of them, Kevin, um, but what did you find out and and what did you share in your piece?
0: Yeah, in in trying to look at the predicament that the trustees find themselves in, I wanted to talk to a couple of trustees, uh, former trustees, folks who are kind of outside of the fray but can talk about the job and what the current trustees are trying to navigate. And one of the folks that I spoke to was Troy Roan, who until last month, was a member of the Boise School Board. And if you recall back in late September, uh, Roan resigned. He was frustrated uh, with the lack of what he saw as a lack of leadership at the federal and state levels on uh, coronavirus response and the punting of this issue to local school boards. Yeah. Now, I had a chance to talk to him, and I kind of wanted to get his perspective a few weeks removed from the job. And, you know he was on the school board for eight years and Troy Rohn is is a professor at Boise State University, very smart guy, uh, you know, very qualified to navigate an issue this complicated. I mean, you know, everybody's trying to figure this out, but, you know, he's, you know, uniquely equipped to work through an issue like this. And, and you know, I think he felt you know overwhelmed by it and feels like trustees are overwhelmed by it. It's just the, the emotions, the, the visceral uh, input, and the visceral comments that they were getting from the community as, as Boise was trying to figure out how to reopen. Uh, and, and I just kind of asked him, you know, okay, you're on the board for eight years before 2020 here. What was the biggest issue you had to deal with? And he went back to 2017, where there was this flap in Boise about starting the school year a week earlier. I remember that, yeah. In mid-August as opposed to later August so that the school year could end by Memorial Day. And if you remember this story, you covered it as well, Clark. We, we both had a, a bite of the story. There was uh, a hue and cry from the community. Uh, folks from the Roaring Springs Water Park weighed in in opposition because you know they didn't want you know, they kids at the water park. They do not want kids at school in the middle of August. And that passed for a big controversy uh, in 2017. I mean, obviously, now we know what, you know, what difficult decisions are uh, in 2020. If only
1: life was so simple.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was it was so quaint back then. We were just worried about whether kids could you know go to the water park or, or start the school year. But, yeah, the, the point being that, you know, he kind of said it. Mike Wheaton a former uh, trustee in the West Data District, said it. N- nobody could have been prepared for this. Uh, how can you prepare for this? I mean, we're all navigating this and figuring out in our personal lives, so why should it be any different for trustees? Um, But I really, you know, I find myself thinking about the West Ada situation. I wrote a lot about it in my piece just in the first six weeks of the school year. They've had an online rollout after Labor Day that really didn't go well, and they had a lot of upset parents. You had legislators, 13 legislators, including some Heavy hitters like Mike Moyle, the House Majority Leader, Chuck Winder, the Senate Majority Leader, could be Senate Pro Tem by next year, urging the trustees to open the school full time. Uh, you know, complete, you know, a complete open. You've got a recall election right now. Uh, parents who are upset about the pace of the reopening going uh, trying to recall all five sitting trustees. Now you've had the sick out. Uh, so There was a lawsuit. So.
1: I, I, I meant to mention that earlier, but uh, a group of four parents, uh, the Idaho Freedom Foundation and I want to say the Liberty Justice Center or something like that, mm-hmm. filed yeah. a suit. Yeah. Uh, they announced it on Tuesday or Wednesday, sued the West Ada Education Association, sued the teachers union, and are asking <laughs> a judge uh, to rule and decide if this was... They're they're alleging that it may have been in a, a legal union strike, and so they want a judge uh, to issue a ruling, and they'd like to prevent that uh, from happening in the future. I think is is where they're going with that lawsuit. But just, I, I mean, so much right. going on in West Ada and right. everywhere.
0: West Ada, and you know, six weeks ago they opened. It, it feels, you know, again, everything feels like it's uh, time feels very different in 2020. But six weeks ago. Uh, we were talking about West data opening and having a, a rough go of it with online learning. And all of this has unfolded just in, in the six weeks since. And again, if you believe the health experts, uh, you know, we're not out of this by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, the, the health crisis is going to uh, get worse. So it's going to be a long school year for West Ada, long school year for trustees uh, across the state. And, you know, Let's, let's, you talked about it before, how the trustees are volunteers and in a lot of communities, school districts really struggle to find people to serve as trustees. These are not hotly contested local elections. Uh, in many cases, there aren't elections at all because uh, the, the races are uncontested and uh, the seats are filled, you know, through volunteers who are appointed to the positions, you know, so, you know, you're already struggling to find people to serve in in this trustee role. And, you know, I talked to Quinn Perry with the Idaho school boards association about this, and this has been a concern for the school boards association for a long time, the difficulty finding, finding trustees. And in many cases, you know, what you find are people in the community who just, who care. They want to get back a little bit. They want to attend. They're willing to attend a, a, a board meeting a month and, you know, try to help out, you know, they're not trying to, um, you know, they're they're hiding it for you know to get their names in the paper, get their names on our site. They're just trying to help out. She says, and I have to think she's right that it's going to be even more difficult for communities to find people who are willing to serve as trustees and and deal with and deal with everything the trustees are dealing with right now. And you know the, the you know the immediate you know, threat and the immediate issues that the coronavirus uh, presents and and moving forward into just sort of the rebuilding of schools and rebuilding of school systems and you know trying to help help kids get uh, get caught up after the coronavirus i mean there are going to be real challenges facing trustees and chances are you're going to have fewer people who want to you know you know sign up for that kind of work
1: Yeah, I mean, this uh, education has been political for a long, long time, and and that's only been heightened recently. But you're absolutely right. Even when the pandemic is under control, whenever that may be, there's going to be all kinds of issues. Our our Devin Bodkin reported this week uh, about how in-person attendance is down throughout uh, the state in Idaho. We're about to start getting our first look at some of this early data, and we expect, uh, well, I've heard Um, from school superintendents uh, looking at local data that there's a lot of learning loss, uh, that Mm -hmm. these achievement gaps uh, are going to be widened. Uh, When you talk about all the disruptions from March onward, uh, finishing the last school year remote, uh, the summer, uh, sort of these fits and starts at the beginning uh, of this school year and the moving back and forth between kids in quarantine and staff in quarantine and in-person instruction and going back remote, a big problem in West Ada, as you mentioned, that's compounding this, is their technology did not work when they started full and remote. I mean, obviously, it worked for some people, but not everybody had devices. Not everybody's worked. Not everybody could connect. Some of the younger students are, are having a hard time, and it's, nothing is easy. Uh, but even and when the pandemic heard, is under control, the fallout of this is going to be years.
0: As they think about If case numbers get worse and we have to think about uh, going from hybrid to online learning, knowing that it went, you know, went so poorly the first time around in September, that's got to be weighing on their minds.
1: Parents were upset and we've seen some of the survey responses. We've heard from some of them specifically who reached out to us and told us how they felt and I don't blame them, Um, but it's just a difficult situation. And West State is kind of, it's a large district. Not everybody has the same issues. But at the same time, it's sort of a microcosm for a little bit of what's going on everywhere.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, there's more to get to this week, as you can imagine, though. Uh, a ton of good stuff. Uh, the homepage is www.idahoednews.org. But one of the big stories that you're tracking as you really focus on taking on higher education is we're starting to get a look at enrollment, which is a big issue for colleges and universities uh, there was a lot of concern about this. Funding is tied up here. And you found that it's kind of a mixed bag, but the worst case scenarios have not come true yet,
0: right? Yeah, I mean, I've been watching for two data points, uh, among others, as I cover higher education this fall. The enrollment numbers and the coronavirus case numbers, because the two are are, are so crucial right now in terms of the challenges higher education is facing, and and they're intertwined. So what we found out this week, we got the enrollment numbers for the, uh, the four four-year institutions, and you're right. Uh, the worst case scenario, the idea that enrollment could drop by 20% or thereabouts, and that was what the national forecasts uh, were suggesting, that didn't happen. Now, some of the drop-offs are now, are significant yes. uh, for University of Idaho, for example, uh, the total drop off was about nine percent. But when you dig into those numbers and when you, you sort out the numbers, you find out that you know it's it really is a mixed bag. And one of the things that really drove the drop offs in enrollment at U of I, at Idaho State University, and Boise State University, is uh, a drop off in dual dual credit, the number of high school students who are taking college-level classes uh, for free, uh, state-funded dual credit classes, that's dropped significantly because high school schedules are all all in flux, obviously, because of the pandemic. So you're seeing a big drop-off in dual credit, which is a story in itself, and that's the story I'm going to try to sort out more. But as it affects enrollment, it really kind of skews the numbers, you know. U of I, ISU, Boise State all said that their on-campus enrollment figures are either slightly up at Boise State or down a couple of percentage points at University of Idaho or Idaho State. So that big, catastrophic loss of enrollment that we were fearing, that university officials were fearing, that didn't materialize. Right. So some... You know, a little bit of glimmer of hope there for the for the colleges and universities that really rely on enrollment and really rely on tuition and fees to to pay the bills because so much of their budget is tied to enrollment and tied to tuition and fees. So we break down all the numbers. We've got uh, two stories on the website because uh, University of Idaho released its numbers on Tuesday. So we've got a standalone story that takes a deep dive at U of I's numbers and then a piece that I posted on Thursday because we got the figures for uh, Boise State, Idaho State and Lewis Clark State College. So you can see what happened at the four institutions. And just quickly, we don't have this story yet, but I'll have the update on this uh, on Monday. I'm starting to compile the weekly roundup of what's happening with coronavirus cases on the campuses. Yep, And some actually some encouraging signs, uh, some case numbers that are actually decreasing. New case numbers are decreasing at U of I, and we've talked about uh, the outbreaks that they've seen in the Greek community. That seems to be subsiding. Uh, Officials are cautiously optimistic, I guess you would say, about uh, where things stand now and trying to get uh, through the rest of the semester, um, the rest of face-to-face learning uh, into Thanksgiving break a drop-off in case numbers at uh, Idaho State, even a drop-off in case numbers at BYU-Idaho, even in the middle of Madison County, which is having such a spike in cases overall. The new case numbers seem to be slowing down a little bit at uh, BYU-Idaho. They're holding steady at Boise State. So again, you know, fluid situation. We could be talking about a whole different scenario next week, but the numbers right now, as far as the outbreak on campuses, uh, numbers seem to at least be stabilizing or, or moving in the right direction.
1: Well, let, let's hope that continues. Like you said, we're about a month away from Thanksgiving, which is kind of a key checkpoint for a lot of our colleges and university system because students really will kind of be going home.
0: It, it's really kind of the end point yep. for uh, you know, U of I and Boise State and Idaho State because they've all planned on – moving into an online learning model for the rest of the fall semester after Thanksgiving. You know, students go home and they stay home uh, rather than come back uh, for a couple of weeks and perhaps uh, come back uh, with the the coronavirus. So really, you know, uh, University of Idaho folks and, and the other university officials are just trying to get to Thanksgiving break. and. You know, if the numbers are stabilizing, that's certainly a good sign.
1: Yeah, let, let's hope they continue uh, to stabilize and get some good news uh, there for sure. And, and like you said, two stories at the homepage at www.idahoednews.org looking at higher education and enrollment. And you'll have you'll have your trend line piece later today, later Friday, October 23rd.
0: Right. And that will look at the overall case numbers, it'll look at some of the county hotspots, it'll look at the... Uh, the K through K twelve numbers that we get from the Department of Health and Welfare those should come uh, sometime Friday. So we'll have all of that Friday evening, and we'll have the campus roundup on Monday.
1: Yep, absolutely, good stuff. Uh, look for that. Uh, just one, maybe two more quick segments that I wanted to get to. Is uh, there anything else on higher education enrollment, Kevin, that you wanted nope. to highlight?
0: I think we got. Uh, I think we got that. And uh, a- again. Two sets of stories, lots of data, and and more that we're going to try to get to. I want to, you know, dig into some of the demographics of this, dig into a little bit of what's happening with dual credit because it's been such a big initiative at the state level, you know. So a lot more to get to on enrollment, but the, the numbers are there, and really they're kind of a mixed bag, which I think a lot of college and university officials will uh, will take at this point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We'll continue to follow that. Thanks, Kevin. Um,
0: Speaking of numbers, though.
1: Yeah, moving into the the lightning round here, this is a story that we both kind of took turns covering this week, but there is huge interest uh, in families uh, in Idaho for this new $50 million federal grant program designed to offset the cost of remote learning. This is something that parents in Idaho can apply for, and it went live earlier this week, and... um, It's the Strong Families, Strong Students Grant Program. Governor Little put $50 million in federal CARES Act relief money into these grants. And the idea is that families can apply to them uh, to help offset the cost of of remote learning. And so if you're a parent and you've got a student in a public school or a private school, or homeschool for that matter if you've lost work during the pandemic, uh, if you're a parent of a student and you've had expenses associated with the move to remote learning, like a computer or a computing device, uh, like internet connectivity, uh, like learning materials, I think even online tutoring. Uh, There's a number of things that can qualify. There's these state grants that are available, um, and they would cover up to $1,500 per student or $3,500 per family. It went live uh, on Wednesday morning and Kevin, it, the response has just been incredible. More than 14,000 applications came in in just over a little over the first 24 hours. Uh, and that covers some 29,200 students. Um, and and so the demand is, is high. And I think it's interesting when they announced this program in September, they were thinking, oh, maybe this could cover about 30,000 students. And so we've had twenty-nine thousand plus apply and it is both a need-based grant and then after that first-come first-serve you you need to provide a tax form uh, your 10w40 if you apply you need to have a form providing proof of your address and your child's school enrollment Uh, but there's going to be waves and uh, your income adjusted gross income will be uh, a factor but just tremendous interest in this program as the state anticipated, so much so that the uh, Strong Family, Strong Students grant uh, application site was under a heavy load at the initial launch and had some delays. But just a lot of interest in this. But there's also some questions about – I don't know about questions, but um, it's, been, it, it's been pointed out that uh, that there was this company, this vendor – Called Class Wallet that received um, basically a no bid contract mm-hmm. uh, on this. And what they're going to do is they're going to manage the online application site and then this online wallet where the families would actually receive their grant money. They've done this in other states. I want to say specifically in Oklahoma. Yep. And timing is a factor. Uh, the state has to award these grants and spend the money by the end of the calendar year in 2020. But as our friend Keith Riddler from the Associated Press pointed out in his coverage, uh, that Tom Luna, who's the former Republican superintendent of public instruction and the current head of the Republican state party in Idaho, is a lobbyist for the group that represents Class Wallet. And, and so that was one of the, the tentacles um, of, of this story. But a big program coming together pretty quickly and just a ton of interest and we're really gonna keep an eye on you know following the money when do they award the money do they announce how many people receive the money do they do demographic breakdowns based on income or based on school district we're really gonna try to follow this closely and then obviously we know uh, through the contract and some of the reporting that Class Wallet is going to be able to charge fees that could bring the value. The base value of the contract is five hundred and fifteen thousand dollars, but Class Wallet will be able to collect fees that will bring the value of the contract. I think it was up to about two million dollars, right? Two Gavin? million.
0: So I mean, there's a lot to watch for here. I mean, there's a lot of dollars to follow, and that's so that's about two million dollars to the vendor that yeah. comes off the top. So when we're talking about a fifty million dollar program, as a practical matter. The state's going to have about 48 million dollars probably to distribute to families. So we're going to want to watch the contract and, and see how it works and, and see how it plays out. Because you know the state's rationale for this no bid contract is that this is uh, federal coronavirus aid that has to be spent by the end of the year. I think families can can spend the money a little bit later than that. But that's the, correct. The if... money has to be. The states have to expend their money by the end of the year so that that's exactly argument,
1: that's exactly no correct concept.
0: yeah but families consider- have
1: families have until the first week of December to apply based on the numbers we're seeing if you think that you're eligible and even want some of this money I would encourage you to apply now uh, because need and then timeliness will will be factors um, but yeah parents, uh, should apply now uh, if they want. The official application deadline isn't until like December 8th. And then the state has to spend the money by the end of the year. Uh, but families have until, I, I want to say June, but I, basically spring uh, to spend the money next year. So if they get it now and they can apply for expenses they've already had, or they can apply to you know tap into the grant. But we're really – going to watch that but even though the state has to turn this around quickly and, and that could be a factor right like a bidding process uh an rfp process and all that if, if that would take 90 days well that pff, that puts us through the end of the year uh
0: right. that's the argument for the no bid contract yeah. and you know that's why the state went this route but i think now it's incumbent upon us as reporters is to watch this process to shine know, a light how on how it works out yeah on where but the money is going interested with these grants and you know just try to get a sense of the demand you know, how much of the demand did it cover it would be i would hope that we can get some data about kind of where the money went geographically yep. of, you know, which communities which school districts uh, where was the need greatest because i think this is a potentially it's a really interesting data point a valuable data point about the digital divide it'll give us a sense uh, a really tangible sense of where that digital divide is most uh, is most acute, and you know where the demand was greatest. So there's a lot that we can hopefully learn through this process, and, and a lot for us to follow.
1: Yeah, we'll continue uh, to follow that. In my article talking about all the demand, the headline is uh, the headline is thousands of parents apply for grants to offset the cost of remote learning. At the bottom of that article if you pull it up there's a link to the application site Uh, and so hopefully that'll make it easier if you haven't gotten there yet already and if you're interested in trying uh, to put in for this program check out my article and there is a link to the application site you will need some paperwork like I said that form 1040 um, proof of address and proof of child's enrollment specifically Um, and so we'll want to gather some of that up together, but we'll continue to cover that. One more thing I just want to point out, today's Friday, October 23rd. That is a deadline for the 2020 election. If you would like to vote absentee and request an absentee ballot today, Friday, October 23rd is the last day to do that in the state of Idaho. Luckily, if you're already registered to vote, it's super easy. All you have to do is visit the official state of Idaho election information site, That's www.idahovotes.gov. You can check if you're registered. You can check to request an absentee ballot. If you've requested the absentee ballot and sent it back already like we have, you can check to see if they've received it and if that's verified. And so a lot of good information there. And uh, if you don't feel comfortable using the state site, you can call your local county clerk's office, or maybe your county has its own elections office, but one of the two. Um, That state website's a good resource. That's where I requested my absentee ballot personally, and it did come in the mail. Uh, You can also use your local county clerk or or county elections office. But today is the deadline. If you miss today's deadline, you can still vote, but you're going to be looking at voting in person um, on Election Day, which is just 10 days away, right, on on November 3rd. And Mm -hmm. in some counties, early voting continues through next week, early in-person voting Uh, But if if you want an absentee ballot, today's the day. you got to do it today. If you miss it today, you can still vote in person. Um, But just a quick reminder because I know everybody knows that the presidential election is this year. um, But a lot of polling places have changed. And your polling place may have changed even from last time. Even if you vote every time and you feel like you know your polling place, because of some of the changes this year, um, your polling place might change. So just double-check that, and if you want the absentee ballot, go ahead and request that today. It only takes a couple of minutes, um, and I would just encourage you to, to double-check your status and look at the options that you have as we get geared up to this big election. Right, Kevin? Yep.
0: Only 10 days.
1: 10 days. Yeah. Which is gonna... 11 days.
0: Less than two weeks, okay? It's, it's We're almost there.
1: Yeah, less than two. Well, yeah, 11 days. and Yeah, but... Okay, uh, that's a lot, and I'm sorry that went long, uh, I know I felt like we had four strong individual topics uh, that we wanted to get to, and the news just keeps coming. So I appreciate you bearing with us. We always appreciate uh, you checking us out, whether you read the homepage at www.idahoednews.org, whether you follow us on Twitter at Idaho Ed News, uh, or connect with us on Facebook, uh, or join us here each week on the Extra Credit Podcast. We have a lot of fun trying to connect the dots on this very complicated intersection of education policy and education politics which is all the more confusing than ever right now yes. um, but we appreciate you hanging out with us and checking us out and seeking us out uh, for information. It, it sure means a lot and, and we're doing the best that we can but as always thanks so much. I'm Clark.
0: I'm Kevin stay safe and have a good week.